Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Uh, we are at the end of our uh, closing class of our uh, 2021 Vipassana Structured Study. Introspective insight into the two marks of existence. Um, this, and, and we're going to conclude with um, three more classes and two more sutras. Saturday's class will be changed uh, to the Kula Sakata Sutta, uh, subtitled The Fearless and Independent Dhamma, uh, to honor Independence Day weekend for us here in the United States. Uh, and then we'll conclude uh, beginning next Tuesday with two classes on the Anapanasati Sutta. And then I'm going to add the Upada Sutta, uh, a sutta about the importance of a well-informed and well-fed Prasanga. Uh, we'll understand why. It's, I think it's perfect at the end of this study. And it will also be included in the book that will be coming out sometime in the next 200 years. Um, the, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, subtitled The Fire Discourse in Relation to the, the Subject, The Fire's Passion, is the third discourse ever given by the Buddha, excuse me. Which are, these first three discourses are known as the cardinal discourses of the Buddha, meaning they're the most important. And in a sense, they are the most important. I don't know that uh, I would override other suttas like the dependent origination or the Anakonstata Sutra and the Sattva Sutra, but uh, they were the first three, and when you understand the Buddha's teaching method, you'll understand why these were the first three. So the first sutra, uh, the first teaching the Buddha ever gave was to his five uh, friends that he was wandering around uh, northern India uh, 2,600 years ago, all seeking understanding and enlightenment, so to speak. Um, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, had left his friends behind because he found what they were looking for and looking at and through was not de developing in him what he thought would be the goal. So he left them and studied on his own. There's a whole long story about where he almost died. A young girl nursed him back to, to health and he awakened. So his first sutta was to those five friends. And that very first sutta, the Dhamma Chakapalatana Sutta, is the first time in human history that the Four Noble Truths were taught. The reason why I'm saying it that way is much of the modern Buddhism talks about that first time that the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths as the first turning of the wheel, in that there were three turnings of the wheel. And I won't get into each and every one of them, but the other two turnings of the wheel are necessary to accommodate magical, mystical, speculative teachings that the Buddha never taught. There was one turning of the wheel, and it was in the very first sutra that the Buddha ever gave, which makes sense, doesn't it? Why would the Buddha, an awakened human being, constantly feel the need to restart his own Dhamma? So he taught the, the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana Sutta to these five friends. And at the end of that sutta, Kandana, one of those buddies, uh, declared all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. What he was referring to is the impermanence of all things. Most importantly, to his understanding, the impermanence of his own thoughts and conclusions about himself and the world he lived in. Upon hearing that, Siddhartha, the Buddha, now a Buddha, declared to Kandana, you are now Anakandana, Anami, you are now the awakened one, you, are, you have awakened to, the, to my Dhamma. The next sutta that he gave was the Anatalakana Sutta, the sutta that describes in direct terms, what a self is and what a self isn't. And that came about by the Buddha listening to what the five friends were talking about and other people now who have become um, interested in the Sangha. And what they were talking about in their loose conversations was, what is he talking about a self? We understand the self to be this, this, and this. The Buddha heard that, and so his next teaching, next teaching was, this is what a self is, a Natalakana Sutta. What he taught was... Contrary to everything everybody was teaching at that time, which is similar to today's teachings, was annihilation of self in some form or another, but usually resolving in a magical or mystical realm of nothingness or emptiness, or at least a nondescript um, existence. The Buddha never taught anything like that. And so that question of what a self is and what a self isn't was answered in the Natalakana Sutta 
But then the question was, well, how, how does, how did a fabrication self arise? How did something that is not is become is? Another way of saying that is what happened? How did we become something that we're not? And that's the fire discourse. The Adita Pariyaya Sutta from the Samyata Nikaya 35.28. The Buddha was staying at Gaya, at Gaya with a thousand monks. So that's pretty impressive. This was about a month or two after the Buddha's awakening. So he already has a large following. There he addressed those. Monks, the all is a flame. And he relates what is a flame to our senses, which makes sense. Let me just say something else about this passion, because people get caught up in it. They think that, um, in fact, we're taught that we should be passionate about our life, passionate about the things we're doing, passionate about our beliefs, and passionate about going out against wrongs, and all the rest of the stuff that's going on today, that have inflamed passions to the point that I haven't seen in 65 years. That being said, it is inbred in us that we should be passionate about our life, almost to the point that if we're not passionate, we're going to lose our life. We will. But we'll lose a fabricated self if we lose our passion. Another word for passion is it a strong emotion, right? And an emotion is simply a thought attached to a feeling. It's a judgment of a feeling. And in this case, it's a judgment of a pleasant feeling that becomes insatiable. I want more, more, more of this. That's the problem. There was a teacher quite a few years ago that I followed, and I thought he was wonderful. I still think he's wonderful. I don't, I don't think he's a bad person in any sense of the word, except he didn't understand what he was teaching. His name was Joseph Campbell. I think everybody here, everybody's heard of Joseph Campbell? Follow Your Bliss, The Power of Men. Brilliant books. I read every one of them. I listened to them. The problem was, and in a relative sense, he was absolutely right. Human beings, in a relative sense, human beings whose minds are rooted in fabrication, whose minds are rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, would best be served to follow their bliss in a non-hurtful way. And all the things that he would talk about following your bliss are things that we would discover within ourselves. I feel blissful about whatever it might be, about painting sunsets. So I'm going to follow my bliss. And that, that initial emotion about what I'm doing will carry me through until it doesn't carry me anymore. So I'm tired of painting. There's no more longer bliss in that. And I'm out of my border. I'm looking for something else. That's called a preoccupation with my bliss, isn't it? I can never satisfy my bliss because whatever I identify as blissful is rooted in my sixth sense base and so will always change. And I'll always be seeking bliss. So we can follow that advice. And again, in a relative sense, it's not a bad way to live your life, except in following your bliss, you will waste your whole life in chasing after bliss. Or you can recognize the foolishness of that type of thinking and focus on understanding what it means to have a human life rather than insist that it be blissful 100% of the time. Or at least your life always be focused on attain, attaining bliss rather than understanding. Am I clear about that? And that's the point. There's nothing wrong with chasing bliss except you don't have a chance of awakening. You'll never be a human being if you insist that your, your life is about always changing, chasing what you decide is blissful. And by the way, everybody decides that's different, right? I mean, everybody has an idea of what... You know, an example might be... I don't want to get into it. Politics today are just so perfect for for displaying ignorance, but I don't want to get into it anymore. Um, Adolf Hitler thought thought that his bliss was in achieving his goals, which were horrendous, weren't they? That was his bliss, and he followed his bliss. Look what he did! Look what he did! Following your bliss is a danger or can be a very dangerous thing. Or we can listen to what the Buddha taught and understand the dangers even in the, the, the notion that a passion, any passion, could somehow be, just to use the modern term, woke, meaning helpful, is leading us in a progressive way. It's not. If it's rooted in an emotion, if it's rooted in a, in a strong feeling that something must be a certain way, 
look what's going on today. It's got to be hurtful. It's got to be a fabrication. Because nothing that's rooted in reality could be anything more than just peaceful and calm. That's a sure way of knowing for really being helpful to society. Is it leading to peace and calm in myself and other people? Activists today would have to say, no, it's not. Maybe we should call our heels. Let me continue. Amongst the all is a flame. What all is a flame? The eye is a flame. Forms are a flame. Consciousness at the eye is a flame. Meaning, interpreting what I'm seeing in a mind rooted in ignorance is inflaming what I'm seeing. Consciousness at the eye is a flame. Contact at the eye is a flame. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the eye, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. What arises in dependence on contact at the eye? What is arising? What is the feeling in relation to? Desire. What's the desire arising from? Eat. Clean to something. Just And what, what's the root of clean? Right, that was a beautiful progression. Yes, ignorance. We're getting, again, pointing us right back to the root. The resolution to all of humans' problems, all of humanity's problems, the resolution of that single cause of most human pain, passion, is resolved through understanding or abandoning ignorance. It's the essence of the Dharma. It's what we keep coming back to over and over again. So people aren't really ever... misunderstanding of impermanence, so therefore it's suffering. Again, well said, David. What, what David is pointing out is that even though I paint that beautiful sunset, now I'm done. What's next? Nothing I achieve is going to be permanent. I cannot establish a permanent bliss. Why? And every, every human being has tried that. Every human being has ever lived a life has tried to establish bliss or whatever they think is bliss, safety, power, etc., etc., and most coconuts in your hut. Every, that's how a human being lives their life. And we're encouraged to do it. It seems reasonable. We've created an intricate and almost unknowable systems to incorporate ourselves within our passions. And point for in modern secular Buddhism they're chasing after some kind of permanent bliss. Yes, thank you. That's the problem. That's the problem. And the, the idea, the idea, the idea that we can establish a permanent bliss contradicts everything an awakened human being ever said. Beginning with the first noble truth. Please, Michael. What about uh, skillful passion? Skillful desire. Chanda is the word with the right Pali word. C-H-A-N-D-A. So within the within the Dhamma and within every human being, I've talked about this, I use the word hope on retreat, just to use the word. Every human being has an inner motivation to seek understanding. But our minds are so conditioned that most of us can never get there. We have too much dust in our eyes because of a consequence of living in the world. It's not right, it's not wrong. But life, human life, the first thing we have to understand as Dharma practitioners is human life isn't fair, and it cannot be fair. Another, another foolishness like chasing your bliss is chasing fairness or insisting that life should be fair. And the best, most hit-you-between-the-eyes example of that, but there's endless numbers, is some people are born into humanity and live two seconds and die. And some people are born into humanity and live 115 years, and then they die. What's the fairness in that? There isn't. But it can't be. The system doesn't support fairness. It just doesn't. So that mind might go, well, it has to. There has to be fairness. There has to be some resolution or, or resolving factor in the universe. So let's fabricate a God that oversees all this. This is where we go with this, this type of thinking. 
rather than just being present with what's here, without eye-making, which means that what is present is enough. I was going to say more than enough. It's just enough because it's what's occurring. There's no arising of passion because there's nothing left within me. There's no ignorance left within me to provoke another moment rooted in passion, as the Buddha would say, rooted in ignorance. Thank you, David, and all of us for getting back to that. So is there, is there space then, maybe not for passion, as Michael's suggesting, with the right view? Would it be called something else that would be more appropriate? Well, you have to be able to enjoy the sunset, but you're not attached to it because you have right view. So what what's the experience then called? Well, it's I, not the, the clean. Yes, we can get. We, this is this is where we have to apply some um, human sensibility, because we can do, get too caught up in semantics of it. Well, passion is dead, so there, that just means that there's no good passion. Well, there isn't. Using passion in a very relative sense, which is just inclined towards something, if we can use that, then it, it's there's, there's nothing unskillful about enjoying the sunset. Unless we start insisting that every sunset be as good as that one. Or tomorrow night when we're sitting there and the sunset isn't quite as spectacular, we look back at that, oh, yesterday's was so much better than this moment. Then we know we're in the moment where I make. But there's nothing wrong with, with walking to the beach with the inclination that I hope I, or I hope, well, that's okay. And walking to the beach with the expectation that there's going to be a beautiful sunset. And so whatever that sunset is at that moment is what it is. And if it's not as good as last night's, it's what it is. And if we don't start projecting by, eh, it wasn't that good. I hope tomorrow's is. We're just present. It's what's occurring. And it's just it's just the same as what's occurring. And it, 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 it would have as much meaning to that human being as far as establishment of the self. Let me say this how I was going to say it before I pause. That would have as much meaning Experiencing a beautiful sunset would have as much meaning as a human being as sitting on the side of the Garden State Parkway at Russia. Except, or understanding the motivation. Of course, a human being would enjoy a sunset much more than a human being would enjoy sitting on the side of the Garden State Parkway at Russia. But there wouldn't be any eye-making. That person wouldn't take it personally. Why the hell am I stuck here when I could be watching the sunset? Do you see the difference? The meaning of the word here, what you're describing, is watching the beautiful sunset. Watching the sunset. Watching the sunset. That is beautiful because it's part of the world. It's there. It's there. It's so, so again, what, 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 we're just, what we're doing is we're actually falling down the, the, that, the rat hole of, of semantics anyway, even though I hope to avoid it. We're just, when we're talking about skillful passion, it's just that. So there is such a thing. Um, in the Dhamma, there's views. There's right views and wrong views. So to say that I have a view isn't wrong, especially if it's a right view. There's skillful passions and there's unskillful passions. Unskillful passions are rooted in ignorance of four another truth. Skillful passions are an expression. And you could even say a passion passionful expression of that passion. I mean, I would say, thinking about it, I'm, I'm passionate about Donald practice. And it's a skillful passion. I, it, I mean, it is. I know because I know the Donald. Yeah, maybe it's not like right effort then, right? Well, you know, I would say that my passion for the Donald informs my right effort. It's what got me here today when I was sitting Sitting home thinking, I don't want to go talk to those crazy people. It's nice and cool. And that's what I'm saying. But right, I mean, with I, right view, with right view being the structure of, of any feeling, then you can't have passion. Yes, and 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 the motivating factor is that right view. If the motivating factor is right view. It's not going to be an ex a distraction, and it's not going to even be an excitement. It'll simply be a motivation based on preference. And of course, my preference would be, and again, well, who's making that decision? We are getting too deeply into, into semantics. Look at what we're talking about. Letting go of all fabrications. 
if we're hooking our, our, our thinking on the semantics of it, we're actually looking for where it doesn't work rather than applying it as it's being taught. And that's something that was very common during the Buddhist time and it's still common today. You know, this, and, and I mean, it, it's the it's a national pastime too. It's this, this what ifness kind of thing called something else too. Um, let me continue. Consciousness at the eye is a flame. Contact at the eye is a flame. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the eye, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with a fire. Using the word fire in a, in a hurtful way. Fire burns you up. A flame with a fire of passion. The fire of aversion. The fire of delusion. The fire of the three defilements. I tell you, with a, a flame, I tell you, with birth, with aging and death. A flame with dukkha, with suffering. A flame with sorrows, with regrets, with pain, distresses and despairs. The ear is a flame, sounds are a flame, the nose is a flame, aromas are a flame. The tongue is a flame, flavors are a flame, the body is a flame, tactile sensations are a flame. The intellect is a flame, which means that ideas are a flame even good ones. Consciousness at the intellect is a flame. Contact at the intellect is a flame and whatever there is that arises independence on contact at the intellect. Experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. Isn't it interesting that the Buddha first started with the physical manifestations of ignorance and then takes us to the mental aspects and he still describes the same thing? Pain, pleasure, or neither neither pleasure nor pain. And it's all rooted in ignorance. It's not rooted in us, or it's not even rooted in the world. It's rooted in the way that we think about ourselves in relation to the world. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of a delusion. I, a flame, I say, with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, regrets, pains, dis distresses, and despairs. Seeing thus, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones grows disenchanted with the eye. That's such a good word, you um, enchanted or disenchanted. And being enchanted means that we are enchanted. We are mesmerized, almost hypnotized by something. Which means we're not seeing it clearly, correct? Being enchanted by something. So the whole point of the Dhamma is to become disenchanted with our enchantment with ourselves in relation to the world. Because we are so enchanted with ourselves, so mesmerized by our own thinking, I think if there's a line that truth happens that relates to that, that we are the hypnotist playing this joke on ourselves. It's this this like a mirage, it's not really a mirage. We're doing this to ourselves. They grow disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with consciousness, disenchanted with our own thinking. Another word would be disenamored, because until that point, we are enamored. You could say that we're in love, we're infatuated by our own thinking. Disenchanted with consciousness at the eye, disenchanted with contact at the eye. And whatever there is that arises in dependence of contact at the eye, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, with that too, they grow disenchanted. Imagine looking out on the world and just seeing common peace in everything, including other people's hatred. Imagine living in the world today and not re be reacting to other people's hatred and what they want to put on you. Imagine being able to not buy into what other people insist on putting on each other today. It's a wonderful way of living, I can tell you. He vows disenchanted with the ear. I'm sorry, he grows disenchanted with the ear. He grows disenchanted with the nose. He grows disenchanted with the tongue. He grows disenchanted with the body. He grows disenchanted with the intellect, disenchanted with ideas, disenchanted with consciousness at the intellect, and disenchanted with contact at the intellect. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the intellect, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, he grows disenchanted with that too. 
whatever arises. A mind resting in jhana, integrated with the Eightfold Path, they grow disenchanted with that too. Disenchanted, they become dispassionate. Through disenchantment, through directing my mind away from my own enchantment, I naturally become dispassionate. The passion that I had for maintaining my own ignorance simply falls away. There's nothing that I have to do about it. There's nothing that I can do about it. There's nothing that I should do about it. And the main thing I should not do is to seek outside help for it or an outside agency to remove it. Through dispassion, they are fully released with full release. How do we know we're fully released? They know they're fully released. We have the direct experience. There's no ambiguity about that. We know. How do we know? Because the Buddha even describes the quality of that mind in very calm, simple, and understandable terms. Calm. Everybody knows what it is. There is the knowledge fully released. They discern, they understand that birth is ended. The holy life, meaning a life integrated into the Eightfold Path, is fulfilled. The task is done. There is nothing further for this world. Meaning there's nothing else to do. Now I can start living a human life. There's nothing further for me in this world. Now I can start living. That is what the Blessed One, the Buddha said. Gratified, the monks were delighted at his words. And while this explanation was given, was being given, the hearts of the thousand, thousand monks through not clinging, meaning not clinging to ignorance, were fully released from fermentations in the effort, meaning they awakened on the spot. I think you'll all understand why it's at this point in the sutra, because it really encapsulates everything and paints a, just a, a vivid picture of what we're doing and why. And again, an emphasis on how it's applied right here, right now, at the point that I am coming in contact with the phenomena arising and passing. So let's hear what Jane has to say tonight. Hello, Jane. Hi, John. You know, oh, thank you for the teaching. Um, you know, it's, these monks are always awakening right away. Can you hear me? Yes, Mike, could you turn the air conditioning off? Thank you. Um, it seems like the monks always awaken right away. And I yeah. think of how hard it is for us, I know they had their own distractions and everything, but I'm just thinking for myself, like I used to come home from work and turn the television on. Just like, you know, take your shoes off, turn the television on. And and I realized how now that was, how distracting that was. Because no matter what you turn on, you're either gonna like it, dislike it, you know, even if it's in the background, I mean, it's a distraction. Yeah. And, and, and I find and myself and now, Trying not, no, I find myself now deliberately trying not to get, you know, put more distractions in front of myself. I, that yeah. is outstanding. That's that pure dhamma, isn't it? Yeah, the, the you know, and I'm, I'm finding more peace in just listening to the birds, or you know. So I think yeah, there are things you're not seeking distraction anymore. That's it, you know. Where it was just, just so rote. You remind when this is quite a few years ago, but. I did the same thing. When I walked into my house, you know, done with my work day, the first thing I did is I put the news on, whether I watched it or not. And even if I didn't watch it all night, that, that darn TV was playing all night long. Playing, yeah. Yeah. Was that, I mean, and if for some reason, like the power went out, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I didn't have that constant distraction in the back of my mind. Now, you know, it... it, it now when I do watch TV, you know, I'm always, I say I'm happy. I notice when it's turned off and it's quiet. You know, right. Thank you, Jane. Hello, Brian. Hi, John. Thanks for this. Appreciate it. Um, Thank you. I was just thinking back to the, the sunset conversation. And in, in my head, any what I guess for me personally, just trying to stop putting adjectives in front of events or objects. Yeah, because it feels like it's you know making it subjective, which then is a fabrication. So it's 
it's not a beautiful sunset. It's not a horrible sunset. It's just a sunset. And just, that's it. Yeah. And then what I was, what I'm referring to though, not though, um, when I see a beautiful sunset, sunset, in my mind, I'm looking at a beautiful sunset. But I don't feel like I'm eye-making because I'm noticing the beauty in the world. It's not, it's not a comparative beauty. In other words, yeah. it's not – what I'm witnessing right now is the beautiful sunset. Last night's wasn't as good. That's not, that's not the way I think anymore, but that's remarkable to me. Right. Because – and, and, um, and even more significant ways – um, and how do I explain that? No, I, I think I get it. Because people, because I don't, at least I, I think I'm much better at prejudging people. My interact, my normal, ordinary interactions with, with non-Dama people is much more meaningful. Why? Because I'm able to be present with those people, whether they recognize it or not. Um, and I, and I noticed sometimes I had my blood test t- tested yesterday. She came to my house and took blood. And so I'm pretty present with people now uh and i have been for quite a few years some people find that off-putting i'm, I'm it's uh, i have to be careful because it almost feels like i'm in people's faces and i noticed that this woman was being was getting off put by me um being so friendly with her when mm-hmm. she was professional and i you know i have to point out in today's culture she was a woman of color in the middle of white america in a rural house with nobody else around so I quickly understood her dis her disease. Sure. Um, and so I stopped trying to be so my you know my normal self friendly and ebullient, and right. I just calmed down and I, I acted in a professional way with her in a completely professional way. All of that to say, and so she calmed down, finished her deal, and walked out of the house. I handled the situation the, the the situation much better because I was present and I didn't get offended by the fact that she wasn't opening up to me. Why did I explain that well? Yeah, you... you um, In the past, you I would have expected much more from her. Instead, I it was my behavior that was creating the disease in her. So I changed my behavior. But the point is, I was present enough to notice that. Right. Where in the past, I would have put it on her. I would wonder what's wrong with her. I could she's treating me like this. Yeah, you, you get to the point where you, can, you notice the conditioning and you know the subtleties and you can react appropriately. Yeah. And I'm, I'm much more responsible for, for the quality of my mind today than I ever was. And that, that's a wonderful thing because, you know, I, I used to wonder, why am I so upset? You know, what happened? How, the, how does the world and these people in the world have so much control over me? They didn't. I was giving them control over my mind by my reaction to things, my grasping after. You know, and that, that's all that the Buddha teaches, too, is you know, stop doing it. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, John. Hello, David. Hello, John. I'm good tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Ron. Hello, John. Um, yeah, I look at this sutta and, and, and uh, <laughs> that last line, uh, you know, where a thousand monks are getting their minds blown. Um, <laughs> and, and you look at it, you know, the, the immensity of, of, the, of the moment there where he, he lays out the really the detailed, like, this is how you got to, you know, this this miserable life that you experienced. And nobody had heard that before. Yep. There was always something else that you could do. Well, including the acknowledgement of miserableness. Right, yeah. Because everything else was geared towards life isn't like that. You can get right. past that and then leave it behind. Yeah, and, and, and they, you know, and if they were all fire worshippers, you know, there's this... It's all this ritual that has to be done, and it yep. has to be done right. And, and and what do you get afterwards? Oh, you get your bliss, right? Yeah. As long as the fire gods are yeah. noticed, yeah. And all of a sudden, there's somebody there telling them, "You don't need to do any of this. Right. You just this. You're doing it yourself, which means which means you can undo it yourself too." Yeah, that's right. It's so important. You can undo it yourself. And and so it's it really in another sense it's a di- different direction. Is do I find my bliss in impermanent things or do I find my bliss in something that lasts that persists, which is the truth, understanding. It's the only thing. Thank you, Rob. Hello, Tom. Hi. Thank you for your teaching. My pleasure. Um, in the in the city, describe the dispassion almost as a switch. Turn that up and. To me, that seems worthy of practice. <laughs> yeah. 
because if, if, you, if, you, if you practice that, you become self, you become aware of that more so, and can uh, exercise and develop and. Yes. Anyway, I'm taking on that. Yeah, yeah. Well said, Tom. That is that's dharma practice it's at that point when you notice that your passions are arising when you notice a reaction when you notice a distraction towards passion practice it down and it, and it is at that point it is simple you take a breath you make the mind and body and remind yourself what the buddha told bahia and many others this is not me this is not mine this is not what i am <gasps> look at that beautiful stuff wait a minute this is not me this is not what i am oh wait a minute this is not me you know? I mean, and, and it really is that simple. The first, you know, 18,000 times you do it might seem a little annoying because it's over, it's repetitive. But that's not a practice. And we do get to the point rather quickly where the initial recognition, the reaction in the initial recognition of this is not me becomes uh, rote, becomes almost automatic. And that's when you know you're really integrated. And then you get to the point where you don't even go through that. It's sunset. And by the way, it's beautiful. Hello, Michael. Hi, John. Uh, I just look at it as the, the there's nothing wrong with enjoying the sunset, uh, without a doubt. But understanding that the sunset isn't permanent as as it is. Uh, so, without any feelings or understanding any feelings that arise from that, they arise and they pass away without attachment. Yeah. So, if you can like if you're if there's a sunset that is occurring and you're there, then yes, can you in, enjoy in the moment? Yes, but should you attach yourself to it? Absolutely, and enjoying the experience without attachment, yeah. which is basically what David had said before. And that's actually that's the sunset from right view, and uh, from right view, then perception is something that uh, generally creates an impression on our minds. Where, or better so to say, as a, when it's uh, described in the aggregates, it's a mirage. So yep. you're actually, from my view, you see that it is a mirage. Yep. So that's the, the idea that this one sunset is better or worse than another one is the mirage. It's the illusion. Yes. Uh, so well said. Uh, and so you see how the Buddha's Dhamma is the most, and I would say only inclusive teaching ever given to mankind. The modern people, and I'm talking about people even 2600 years ago, but we're, my, people today are so enamored with this, this, this kind of a, I don't know if the right word, this collective way of living in the world that doesn't allow for the discreteness of just what's occurring to arise and pass away and not attach any, any specialness to anything. So when I do that, when I'm able to see the discreteness of each, each and everything, then I can have one sunset after another after another. I don't have to become exclusive in my life and decide that this type of sunset is what I want and this type is not. This type of person is the kind of people I want. This type of person is not. When I can get past that, when I get, can get past judging sunsets, then maybe I can get past judging people. But I got to start somewhere. So I'm using that as a, maybe a silly example. But that's the point. If I really want to be tolerant of everything that occurs and tolerant of everyone in the world, I have to be willing to see the discreteness of each and everything that arises and passes away. And then that allows me to recognize that there's people of each and every color that I, I find agreeable and pleasant. And there's people of each and every color that I find disagreeable and unpleasant. That's humanity. And guess what? I can leave each and every one of those people in peace. I don't need anyone to be any different than they are because I don't need any sunset to be any different than it is. Why? Because it's the, it's the essence of idiocy to think that a sunset should be different than it is. Or that a person should be different than they are. Why? Because they can't possibly be any different than they are. And guess what? Either can I. I can only be a six-property person. And if I'm fortunate enough to come through and understand the Dhamma, then I can experience all of this without any passion at all. Julia, please. Um, this 
this reminds me, I think this is from Bahia Sutta, but I'm not sure. I'm just, I'm just going to read what, what it is and then explain why I, I think this is connected to this. When there is no you in connection with what is seen, heard, sensed, or cognized, there is no you there. You are neither here nor there nor anywhere in between. And sound, that's, it seems to me like the gist of this sutta. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And I, I feel like the sunset thing, the reason why we're having such trouble is we're not, we're not there in that place. Mm-hmm. And we're not released. And so we're thinking, oh, well, then we can't say that it's a beautiful sunset. And we can't say, uh, if you think about being in, in jhana, and there's a moment in jhana when uh, it's so deep and you're no longer, you're just present. But the feeling is so, it's a, a, it's a very, it's a beautiful feeling of like just complete content. And I think that maybe that feeling is what, how we would walk around just like that. Yeah. And it, so you appreciate every, every, everything all around you, regardless, yeah. a stormy sky, a sunset, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, it's your content, yeah. you know, right. and, and with a peaceful mind. So that's, that's the only way I, I try to think of how it could be. And that's the way I think it might be, you know, that's so. perfect. Julia. Another, another word for dukkha is discontent. Fits it perfectly. So being contented is the point of the Dhamma. They're developing contentedness. And again, that, that almost sounds selfish, doesn't it? How can we how can I be content in such a troubled world? Why would you not want to be content in such a troubled world? And wouldn't it be meaningful to actually be content in such a troubled world? And wouldn't you be in a much better position to contribute to a troubled world if you were content and not agitated? Not ready to explode at the next person who doesn't agree with you. Imagine being. Imagine. I don't know. That's there. You were. You were going to say something. No. Um, I almost got into the bunch. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that that whole word. That word. The word content. You know, it almost. Well, I, I, for a lot of people, it would sound boring. Yeah. And when you get to 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 experience something, you realize this is the exact opposite of the world. <laughs> That's bliss. Part of it just disappears. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It is it just just to seek contentment. Uh, Got to be more than, more than being content until you realize that. that when trying to fill up our, our huts with more coconuts than the next person is still trying to find contentment. So it's your way of thinking that that'll make you content. The whole point of the Buddhist Dhamma is none of it makes you content. Nothing. The only thing that can bring contentment is understanding you know, what a human life is. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That understanding what I'm doing would make me content at what I'm doing. And, a human and life, not knowing would make me rather discontented. And a human life includes being able to accept without passion something yeah. that normally you would hate. Yep. Someone else that is cruel or devious that yeah. those are all which is different than passion that's mm-hmm. pa- that's just different words for passion yeah so can you take your sunset example and take it to the most hateful thing that normally you would rail at and that's the dhamma yeah that's right i mean it, it, this it's such a great conversation and it is pure dhamma we can talk about this you know till the fourth of july but that it, it is just this. And I think we're, we're starting to see as a sangha, you know, I've said it hundreds of times that all of man's ills can be traced to this ignorance. And I think we're now seeing it, and especially in relation to what's occurring. I said I was going to get out of politics, but you, you can't help but use the world, the Buddha always did, as and what's occurring in the world as a good lesson in ignorance, because that's what's occurring. And do we want to get caught up in this? Do we want to get caught up in, in, in opinions and take positions and um, uh, the identity politics? Do we really want to do that? Or understand that, or understand that all of that is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And the best example we can give, the most loving thing I can do for myself and all other human beings, and dogs and cats and trees and sunsets, is to take to the dawn and awaken. To, to recognize and abandon any passion I might have for eye making. 
because that can only hurt myself and probably hurt people, but I'll definitely hurt myself if I continue to try to establish myself in the world rather than be at peace with the world. So, and then the world is enough, but it never will be unless I first accept me as I am. So understanding contentment and discontentment are neither contentment and discontentment, right? Well, again, you might you might be getting into an area that that's more semantic than actual usefulness. We're either no, actually, uh, I don't know, uh, because if you understand both ends of that and that which lies between uh, neutrality, right, and ambiguity, okay, when you understand the, the two ends of it, right, then that's that's the time, that's where you're at the point then of abandoning 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 that whole concept of contentment to this. Well, uh, what I was referring to, Michael, and this is where this is, we're doing this in a skillful way. As a Sangha, we're, we're really developing a profound understanding of the Dhamma, but we're still getting into areas that, that really don't have much relationship to the Dhamma. So if there's a, a, a movement between contentment and discontentment within the Dhamma, there is. But the point of the Dhamma is to, is to abandon all things that lead to discontentment and develop contentment or a common peaceful mind. So in other words, the Buddha describes a common peaceful mind as the goal. He's also here describing that peaceful mind through as understanding. And so we could say that there's calm and there's not calm and there's neither calm nor you know what at some point that 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 middle way is not really relevant to the Dhamma or useful, I should say. Maybe it's relevant. Now, when you say the middle way there, are you referring now specifically to the Eightfold Path? Yes. Okay. And, that, and that's what can get us into that type of thinking. The middle way, the, the Eightfold Path is the middle way. We shouldn't take the middle way and think that, okay, I always got to find the middle way between this and that. Because it, it's not that. The, the Buddha presents a very clear, concise Dhamma. And again, as we start developing the Dhamma, we can try to apply it in ways that it really doesn't it's not skillful to apply it. So what I'm saying is that calm, not calm, neither calm nor calm. It's just a, a, a concept that isn't very useful within the dial. All right. Just one more because uh, I have to gain an under, I'm trying to gain an understanding mm. of this uh, without getting into the weeds here and confusing the whole, the whole matter. But the middle way is between the two, which is the eightfold path. And yep. there is a point, there is a point uh, where the middle way becomes a fabrication. So that's who then, of, of, that's where the abandonment comes when you recognize it as a fabrication. Well, it's it, it's a it's a you also you're, you're you're almost getting again too deep into the concept. Of course, conceptually, the eightfold path is fabricated. That, that's talked about in many sutras. But there's no, there's nothing useful in thinking because the Dhamma is ultimately fabric. It, it's a, it's a way of thinking that I'm not even, and I'm having trouble following because it doesn't really relate. The eightfold path is the middle way that we should employ to make sure we're not falling into an extreme view, and that extreme view could be. There's this and there's that, and then there's some kind of conceptual middle way. That's the problem, because it's not useful to the Dhamma. That's and, why it's abandoned, though, isn't it? That's why. No, but it's, it's a, what I'm saying, Michael. It's a thought that, that that's not skillful. You're going. You're, you're taking the idea of contentment too far. That because there's there's this and there's that, and then there's gradations of certain concepts that there must be here. There's no reason to go there. There's either notice that you're content or you're discontent. That's dominant practice in this moment. It doesn't matter if in this if in this moment I have the thought that, oh, I'm in that middle space between contentment and discontent, what is it telling me? In this moment, my mind is discontented. That's all. So the recognition is not discontent or some form or, or gradation of discontent. It's discontent. I strive for contentment. About, yeah. When the Buddha talks about the middle way, he's talking about the middle space between two extreme versions of ignorance. Well, but it's also talking specifically as the Eightfold Path to describe that. To describe the way in between those two extremes. Yep. 
And so there's, there's times where the Buddha uses things like a comparative, um, the reason why he talked about planes like neither perception nor non-perception is because other teachers place such great emphasis on that. And that's the same type of teaching as saying magical, mystical, speculative, et cetera, et cetera. That's all that type of, of plane. That's why the Buddha refers to it. And he refers to it, and those are created because of a mind that's always grasping, has to always be creating these conceptual repositories for its endless type of consciousness. But in the Dhamma says, we don't need to go there. We just have to understand we're developing contentment or I'm stuck in discontent. The middle way there doesn't matter. It's not applicable to the Dhamma, even though the middle way is the phrase we use in the Dhamma. We shouldn't always be looking for a middle way of, of ideas or concepts because some are not, in some concepts, the middle way is not applicable or even skillful. A middle way between contentment and discontentment is still discontent. A middle way between ignorance and understanding is still ignorance. Do you understand? Yes. So the path takes us there. And while we're traveling this path, we will be in those middle states, but they're not the same type of middle state that we're talking about that is a distraction. It's just an acknowledgement of where we are in our Dhamma practice. Yes, it's something not to become entangled with. Yes. And the way to not become entangled with something is simply not to talk about it or think about it, not talk about it. So you're talking about it is just what you should do. Isn't that abandonment? And isn't what abandonment? It's abandoning that whole... That whole uh, getting caught in between the two or eventually yeah yeah so that's basically what i was saying it's just the understanding just beyond that those extremes that once recognized that it, it's not a hindrance anymore to to your practice i think so mm-hmm. yeah have, yeah it's, well it, it's, it does but you can you can you can delay the, the automatic nature of the dhamma by thinking too much about things that have that really don't have a bearing on the dhamma, it and again, it taking taking something like that notion of a middle way is also something that has that has twisted everybody up to describe what it means when the Buddha was very clear about a middle way. So now I hear I hear Buddhist leaders talking about the middle way means that we should establish peace on on the on earth. That's the middle way. Well, that would be the result if everybody practiced the Eightfold Path would be peace on earth. But that's not going to happen, and that's not what that person is saying. They're not teaching an Eightfold Path. They're saying we should all walk a middle way without teaching a way to do it. That's hurtful to insist that people should be peaceful when we don't give them the means for peace. And it, and I, maybe I'm getting a little bit, maybe I'm extrapolating what you're saying too far, but that's kind of the point. We don't even need to think of that. We don't, we, we don't have to abandon a thought that doesn't relate to the Dhamma except to recognize it doesn't relate to the Dhamma and abandon it. Maybe, maybe that was what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, Actually, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. <laughs> That's what but it was so important to get there. Thank you for all this. Because it's an important point. But do you, how do you understand that now? I, I understand it as I, I believe I've always understood it. It's, with understanding, it's, it's not a hindrance anymore. Well, it's not a hindrance. The whole concept of or, or placing importance on either end of the equation once it's understood, because it doesn't, it's not going to uh, enable you to. Uh, it's not going to help you. It's you won't be practicing the Dhamma as the Buddha intended. Yeah, I think I think that we've got caught up a little bit in this class again on uh, on semantics, and we're talking about a beautiful sunset. Well, how can you notice a beautiful sunset? Well, and the same thing with this. I. I, I don't have to, I'm either content or I'm discontent. And again, getting into that middle way is not something that relates to the Dhamma. So I know in, in my practice right here, right now, I'm either content or I'm discontent. I and thought it, that was kind of like the middle because it's like you have well, it's not over happiness. The reason why I sound like I'm arguing Content is in the middle. Well, again, it sounds like I'm arguing a point and you could say it that way. But the point is th- there's contentment. And then there's there's ignorance. Mm-hmm. So let's say it that way, and then then there's no confusion. So we can be content or we can be ignorant. It doesn't need to be a middle way. It doesn't need to. Well, there is no real middle there's, way. No, I, there's I, a, I there's an eightfold yeah. path to go I from ignorance 
to contentment. I think what you're but saying. But the fact that there's a path doesn't. The path is the middle way. Yeah, and we don't have to define any other path except just that. And there's only one version of the middle way. You yeah, don't need to apply it to things that it can't be applied to. Yeah, because so, there's no middle way to between ignorance and understanding. Yes, one or the other. That, they may be two extremes, but that's what they are. There's no. Well, that's they're, they're not extremes in the way that we're using no. the words now. Contentment is not an extreme view. Yeah. Contentment is a quality of mind that we any more that calm is an extreme yes. view. So to say that we have to discount the word contentment by claiming that it's extreme, it's not. In this sense, it's simply describing what an awakened state is. It's a word we use as, as English-speaking people. So, But I think what you brought up, Michael, is so important because it got us to that one point. Well, then, this is what we're doing. Just what you had said a couple of classes ago, you spoke of value. There's no, there's equal value. In, there's no greater value than one end than, than there is to the other. So if there's no equal value, I mean, there is, as I said, the value is the same, okay? In relation to what? If you're making a declarative statement, ask, you have to describe what it's in relation to. So it's in, the in same re in relation to what? In relate, let's just say, uh, just say in contentment or non-contentment, because that's what we're using right here. Okay, but it, it's also saying it's the same thing? It's, well, you don't, the, uh, the unbinding from that would be understanding that neither one, neither has a greater value. No, yeah, I, yeah we, we should probably talk about this privately because I think we're going too far with the class setting, but, and I want to. Um, but you're, 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 you're trying to apply a concept, Michael, that doesn't fit. It just doesn't. The, the, the idea of contentment is not an extreme view, so it doesn't require a contrasting view just to have a conversation about it. There, there, there is no. Intent is balanced. Well, again, it's we're trying to describe something, and that's that. What I'm, I'm, I'm. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking of all the ways to describe contentment, but we know yeah. what contentment is. It, it's it does not need it's another description, in, but it also state. does not need a thought attached to it that would describe it and dismiss it as something that is not. Dhamma practice and say that it, it is it's an extreme it's, an, it's, right. it's, not, it's not it's not even a, it's not a view in a sense it's simply a word mm -hmm. describing a quality of mind yes and so the difficulty that develops is when we start trying to apply concepts in ways that they're not meant to be applied and so the Buddha talked about a middle way referring to the Eightfold Path but that middle way is a governing principle that points us back to the Eightfold Path, not to, to create a conflict between two words. And the, so I guess what I'm saying now, using that word, the conflict between the two words isn't in the dominant, it's within your own mind, and anybody, not just you, you're not unique in this, in anybody's mind that, that ties those things together and tries to see something that isn't there. That's part of, the, of Dhamma practice, of recognizing where we're fabricating. And you started this brilliantly, saying, is it a fabrication? Yes, it is. But the quality of mind is the quality of an awakened human being. So along the way, I can only, along the way towards awakening, and we'll end with this, I can only fabricate what it means to have a calm and content mind because I haven't experienced it yet. But once I have it, I can assure you that I can use the word common content and it accurately describes the quality of my mind. I can assure you I'm not selling you an extreme view. It's common content. It's, in fact, it's ordinary. So what a great discussion. We need to talk more about Sure, you. absolutely. Uh, is anybody else? Okay, we're going to finish with uh, Meta as we always do. And like I said, there'll be a... Uh, It'll be an email, a, a, a sutta relevant to the holiday weekend, to Independence Day uh, on Saturday. We'll finish with metta as we always do. The Buddha's words on metta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, 
contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise will later reprove. Wishing and gladness and safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.